Hey folks, a quick note before we start. As you know, we support this show through an ad-based model, and sometimes we read ads for companies that we cover. So this week later in the show, we're going to be talking about PG&E. Just so it's clear to everyone, our sponsors do not have influence on our coverage. The editorial decisions on this show are made independently. Now, sometimes we do post sponsored episodes. You'll see those in the feed occasionally. Those are clearly labeled and done in a different style, but our advertisers do not have a say in the regular editorial content of this podcast. Well, now that that's out of the way, let's talk about our sponsors. We are supported by PG&E, and PG&E is committed to boosting electric vehicles, not just for single drivers, but for whole fleets. If you want to take your corporate or municipal transportation fleets electric, PG&E has you covered with logistical and technical support. Get in touch with PG&E's EV specialist to find out how you can take your transportation electric. Find out more at pge.com gtm. Support for the Energy Gang also comes from Wonder Capital. You know, we've been telling you that Wonder can finance your commercial or community solar projects, and we've been telling you about the speed at which they can do it, lightning speed. But did you know they now have lower rates and can finance all kinds of projects? That's right. Head on over to wondercapital.com gtm to experience the wonder difference and see what kind of projects they can help you with. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome all to the show. This week, we're tackling subsidies. A new report from the International Monetary Fund on global fossil fuel subsidies is yet again causing a cycle of outraged headlines, followed by cautious analysis, followed by confusion. Are subsidies up or are they down? We will discuss. Then tax subsidies for solar and wind are set to ramp downward. It was part of a deal struck in 2015, but some are calling for an extension of those credits once again. Wait, didn't the industry say it would be fine without them? Finally, PG&E is warning California customers about planned blackouts during this year's fire season. Does this open up a new opportunity for commercial microgrids and residential battery backup? Out in San Francisco, where we haven't gotten blackouts yet, but they may be coming, is Jigger Shah, the president of Generate Capital. Hello, Jigger. How are you? Exhausted. Just trying to keep the lights on around here. <laughs> are, are you like <laughs> manually running around? Yeah. Trying to check the equipment and make sure the lights are running? Exactly. Exactly. In Washington, D.C., sitting within a block radius of the World Bank, Treasury, the American Biogas Council, the Global Taiwan Institute, a core power yoga studio, and Shake Shack is Catherine Hamilton. She is the chair of 38 North Solutions. Hello, Catherine. How are you doing there in DuPont Circle? I'm great. I'm feeling like a little unsubsidized island in the middle of all this. I, I really love DC. You have this amalgamation of very serious organizations mixed in with all these playful bars and businesses. And just a half a mile away from you sits the International Monetary Fund. And a few economists at the IMF recently issued a working paper on global fossil fuel subsidies, finding that oil, gas, and coal got $5.2 trillion in subsidies in 2017. That's an increase of $500 billion from 2015. But wait, they also found that fossil fuel subsidies had fallen by half since 2012. So which is it? It kind of sounds like a riddle, doesn't it? What's brown, 650 million years old, lives in the earth and can rise and fall at the same time? Someone laugh. <laughs> Sorry, I was, I was waiting for the punchline. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, but seriously, because we have a couple conflicting conclusions here, it's worth unpacking these numbers. So according to the IMF report, direct subsidies are at $296 billion in 2017. And that's about half of what it was in 2015. So that's good news. But when you factor in subsidies to lower the cost of fossil fuels for consumers, they amount to about half a trillion dollars. And then here's the kicker. When factoring in the unpriced harms to the environment and public health, that's where you get these trillions of dollars in subsidies. And I think that's where the controversial piece of this report comes in. So, Catherine, let's break down the direct subsidies piece and talk about what that entails. Yeah, so I've been working for a couple of years with Doug Kopla from EarthTrack on my work with the World Economic Forum to try to get my head around what subsidies are because I am not an expert, but he is. He's doing a big report for OECD that's not yet public, but he and I talked about the IMF report and some of the things he talks about on subsidies, just so that people understand what that means. Their subsidies can include direct spending, so that's you know government programs, grants, energy R&D, those are all subsidies, tax expenditures like the investment tax credit or production tax credit that we're going to talk about a little bit later, accelerated depreciation, that sort of tax subsidy, and then a user fees, which, you know, pipelines have user fees that fund safety measures to the pipelines in part and some other things too. Um, terms of access to resources, so royalty rates, credit. So if you get if you are a resource that gets below market loans or loan guarantees or favorable interest rates, that's a subsidy. Risk mitigation. So if you look back at Price Anderson and the way the nuclear industry has been provided insurance and indemnification, that is all part of a subsidy. Transfers like RPSs, renewable fuel standards, a feed-in tariff, price controls, tariffs, those are all subsidies. Regulations, different rulemaking processes could also be subsidies. And then there are a whole lot of state-owned enterprises as well that can be considered subsidies. So there are a lot of things that go into what are direct subsidies. So when you even look at a resource and see what it's been having, getting over time, you have to look at this entire picture before you can even say, all right, there's a baseline of what this industry has been getting. Okay, so I'm going to real-time fact-check myself. I said that those subsidies had dropped by about half since 2015. It's actually about half since 2012. But still, that's a pretty good story. So, Jigger, if the world is spending less on these direct subsidies that Catherine just outlined, how much of a positive story is that? How much should we be rejoicing right now? Well, I mean, I don't know that that's a you know, thing to rejoice about. I mean, we did try to figure out how to get them to zero. The G20 met multiple times under Obama and said that they were going to get rid of them. So, you know, getting down by half, okay, fine, you get half a star. Um, but, you know, the bigger the bigger thing with that is that that in general, I would say production subsidies, which are the most nefarious ones, right? That's when the UK actually helped its oil industry with direct subsidies to drill more in the North Sea, for instance, right? Those subsidies are starting to come down because they just look so nefarious. The ones that are harder to get rid of are the fossil fuel consumption subsidies. And this is where governments like Nigeria and Kenya and others 
um, provide subsidies to people who consume fossil fuels, so kerosene or other things. And they're trying to make these fossil fuels more cost effective to their people. But invariably, over half to three quarters of those subsidies get pocketed by middlemen along the way, which is why we've been, you know, moving as fast as we have to, you know, give these populations better access to renewable energy, which are a lot cheaper than the fossil fuels they were consuming even after subsidies. Right. So when you factor in these uh, downstream subsidies, they get us to about a half a trillion dollars in 2017. So they are significant. Are they... It sounds like they're harder to phase out simply because the argument is that you're helping people without access or with limited access to energy get more energy. Seems a little bit more politically fraught to start to phase these out. Yeah, when I was running the Carbon War Room, we had a large initiative to phase out is a strong word. What we had said to the governments was that we should... um, convert these subsidies into subsidies for renewable energy, for solar lanterns and other things, because that would make the population switch faster. Um, one of the largest opponents to that was Mary Robinson, the former you know, head of Ireland and now global ambassador in these issues. And it took us a lot of time to actually convince her that we were right and that you know, trapping poor people with fossil fuel subsidies was not a great move, but she was just so concerned about the livelihoods of those people uh, in the moment that she was worried that canceling fossil fuel subsidies or converting them would be, you know, would lead to human suffering, which I, you know, totally sympathize with her on. And, you know, but I think over time we were able to convince her and many other people that, in fact, these subsidies are actually making it harder for renewable energy entrepreneurs to compete because if they were competing against the full landed cost of kerosene, it would be like a three-month payback for a solar lantern. But instead, it's like a one-year payback, which, you know, even even that feels fast, but it's quite slow in the in the hands of, you know, the, the, the poor in these countries. Yeah. And what's interesting is that in the IMF report, what they're classifying as also a subsidy, which Stephen, I think you alluded to as an indirect subsidy is, is what you're not paying for the bad effects of all and the cost on the environment, on CO2 and deaths caused by fossil fuel use. And they say, even if you raise, if you remove those subsidies, so by removing those, that's like the double negative where you're actually increasing the cost of these fuels based on what they're doing, in, in, you know, what they're, what they're not paying for and the harm would lower CO2, lower the number of deaths, would increase global GDP by 4% in 2017 numbers, and then increase economic welfare despite the increase in cost by almost 2% of GDP. So they're saying that if you actually pay the price that you should because of the detrimental impacts of fossil fuels, that you will in the end, bet everybody in the end will benefit. And this is where things get really complicated because most people can understand direct subsidies, even if it is a complicated network of subsidies, fairly understandable and straightforward. The subsidies used to lower the cost of fossil fuels, while they are wide ranging, I think equally easy to understand. But when you get to this $5.2 trillion number, they're, they're mostly factoring in the unaccounted for 
cost uh, to the environment and public health. And it's 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 kind of confusing because it's certainly not a subsidy in the traditional sense of the word. It's an important cost to consider, but I think when most people hear subsidies and they hear, oh my gosh, we're pay- paying $5.2 trillion a year to support oil, gas, and coal, they're kind of assuming that this is government spending and not the unaccounted for cost. Yeah, well, but, but in some cases it is government spending. So I do want to make sure that we're not you know, getting very, very... Uh, you know, sort of broad with this. I, I get the fact that, you know, pouring carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which they also count, may or may not really be a hard cost somewhere. But when, but part of the calculations are making is also the spillover effects on our healthcare systems, right? I mean, air pollution really does shorten people's lives and means many trips to the hospital from asthma patients and other people. And those are hard subsidies, right? So the National Academy of Sciences did this study in the United States in 2009, 2010, and estimated that $120 billion annually of the U.S. government's healthcare expenditures are actually going to mitigate fossil fuel burning, right? And so those costs are hard costs that they should actually be taxed for because the U.S. government's paying for that as a subsidy in hard dollars. Well, when is it appropriate to use this kind of number? And when is it more appropriate to just focus on more direct subsidies? Well, I just want to make sure that that we're clear that like when you think about the $5.2 trillion dollars, right? Only about a trillion of that is global warming, right? $4.2 trillion of that is other things like local air pollution impacts or foregone consumption tax revenue or other local factors, right? And so so I don't want people to think that like of the $5.2 trillion, you know, $4 trillion of that is, is climate change, CO2, and, you know, only $1.2 trillion is hard costs. I think it's close to three and a half to four trillion of hard costs that someone is paying for, you know, lost health, right? Or unable to go out and go shopping because the because the local air pollution is so bad that people have been forced to stay at home and that only cars with even numbered or odd numbered license plates are actually able to travel, right? I mean, these are real restrictions on human sort of movement. And so I think that, to me, those are real things that we should be counting. And that number, even if you took out climate change and global warming, is like $4 trillion a year. Yeah. And if you look at the breakdown just proportionally of where those subsidies are, of course, 85% of them are for coal and petroleum. Um, but the countries that are the highest are China is number one. At With with this additional subsidy calculation, it's at $1.4 trillion. The U.S. is number two with almost $650 billion. Russia, EU, and India fall beyond that. But um, yeah, China and the U.S. are the biggest subsidizers. Well, and magically, only half of that amount is needed for Jay Inslee's plan, right? And so like, part of the reason these reports matter is because it puts into context these other programs that we're all talking about and whether or not they're actually within the realm of reason, right? I mean, sometimes people say, oh, that's a huge amount of money that we would never spend. But then you're like, well, we're already spending it. We just don't classify it that way. Well, since you teased Jay Inslee's fantastic climate plan, I will tease to listeners that next week we are going to have an extensive conversation on 
Inslee's plan and other Democratic candidate plans. It'll be our first foray into the primaries. We're going to try not to cover politics ad nauseum, but we now have a bunch of really good plans out there. And so we're going to talk about, you know, the kind of spending that Democrats are outlining and where this stacks up to where we need to go. But back to the final question, which is what are the practical applications for this kind of subsidy report? Jigger, you alluded to the fact that you can use this to convince countries to change subsidies into improving access for cleaner technologies. But what else is there? Um, When you see this big, giant number, how does it get filtered through the policy and politics ether? So I think from my lens, right, this is really about, you know, entrepreneurship, which is what I care deeply about. And I think that what you find is, is that these subsidies tend to bend the playing field in ways that discourage entrepreneurs and innovators from going in and solving real problems for people, right? And I think that what you find when you look at like, you know, India's prime minister who has really gone to war against a lot of these subsidies, right? It does take an extraordinary amount of political strength to go after them, right? I mean, some of the entrepreneurs that we have supported over the years who have put in solar systems at telecom towers, for instance. I mean, diesel mafias that used to steal half the diesel at these telecom towers as part of an agreement with the telecom tower owners would come up with a shotgun and shoot out these solar panels, right? And so I sometimes think that we all have these sort of whimsical thoughts around $5.2 trillion. But it really does trickle down to everyday life for a lot of people around the world. And I do think that that having governments read these kinds of reports and stand up for a level playing field is really politically difficult, but so critically important to getting us to a better future. Coming up, we shift our focus from global fossil fuel subsidies to tax subsidies for wind and solar in the U.S. First, though, let's talk about electric vehicles. You know, it's it's time to begin electrifying your fleet of vehicles and if you're in PG&E's service territory, you can take advantage of limited time incentives as part of PG&E's new EV fleet program. Do you operate school buses, transit buses, delivery vehicles, or other fleet vehicles? If so, you can use PG&E's financial, logistical, and construction support for all the infrastructure needed to charge your fleet. Get in touch with one of PG&E's EV specialists and learn more at pge.com gtm. And if you're looking to pair that EV charging with solar, our other sponsor, Wonder Capital, can certainly help. In fact, they can help with all kinds of solar projects, not just traditional commercial projects. So in New York, they can help finance community solar with 100% residential offtake. They can go to Hawaii and help you finance a system with a storage component. They can go to California and help finance projects through community choice aggregation. You know, there's no such thing as a vanilla commercial solar project. Every project is unique. And if you go to wondercapital.com slash GTM, you can speak with some folks who will understand your unique project for what it is. Financeable. The facts on the ground have changed. That's what many Democrats are now arguing as they seek to re-extend solar and wind tax credits. New tariffs the dismantling of the clean power plan, and other regulatory rollbacks designed to boost fossil fuels are making a 2015 compromise less relevant, they argue. 
Some in the solar industry are now speaking up in favor of a re-extension. Tom Werner, the CEO of SunPower, said on stage at GTM Solar Summit last week that he supported that re-extension. And the solar trade group, SIA, has an extension on its list of stated priorities, although it hasn't come out with an explicit call yet. So after a 2015 compromise to extend and then phase down tax subsidies, are we going to be revisiting this issue? And do these industries actually need the credits? Now, Catherine, you were instrumental in helping push forward that now, Catherine, you were instrumental in helping push forward that 2015 compromise. Can you just revisit that piece of history and remind us how it all came together and and what it brought? Yeah, so I would just say I was one of many <laughs> who were involved in that. Um, so what it did was, and remember, here was the situation. We had um, a Democratic House, a Republican Senate, and a Democratic president. And they wanted to come up with a big deal, budget deal, at the end of the year. So the solar and wind folks came together and said, all right, we will do a phase down and phase out for some of our credits. And in exchange for uh, lifting the oil export ban, that was part of the deal. So the environmentalists were not sanguine with that at all. But the solar and wind folks thought, you know, this is a chance. This is a chance for us to get some long time certainty here that we really need, especially the wind industry, which has just waxed and waned so dramatically because of the public uh, production tax credit. So they would have then a stable phase out by 2019 of section 45. Uh, whereas the solar investment tax credit steps down to 10% by 2022 for section 48, which is for commercial and utility projects, but for residential goes away altogether in 2022. So it's more of a phase down. And then for some of it, it keeps going and some of it doesn't. And, um, you know, for solar, that was seen as a good deal. And I think in the end, it was a really good deal. It gave the industry some certainty over the last few years, and they've had boom cycles. I mean, they've had other things to worry about, like the tariff cases, but uh, this has really helped a lot on giving them some certainty. Yeah. So, Jigger, what was the material impact after that deal was passed? Well, as as many people know, uh, utility-scale solar was really only perfected from a paperwork and cost reduction and financing perspective in the run-up to the 2016 uh, you know, tax credit expiration. And so it wasn't until 2014, 2015 that firms like S-Power and Silicon, you know, Ranch and, you know, CCR and others like really got humming. And so, you know, the extension really meant that they were able to use that engine that they had just perfected to put out tens of thousands of megawatts of new solar plants every year. Um, and what we've done is really materially change the outlook on wholesale prices in this country. So I would say that pretty much every single wholesale market in the country now is planning for a very uh, different mix of power resources because of that tax credit extension, which is what we predicted here on the Energy Gang, but also is what's happening for real. So I think there are three distinct questions that I want to answer. One is, can the solar and wind industry compete under this new regime? And when they said that they were going to be competitive by this point, when the tax credits phased down, were they right? The second question is a fairness question, which directly relates to our bigger conversation about uh, fossil fuel subsidies. And that is, 
it's a lot easier to target wind and solar tax credits, and it, it's particularly easy to target them now because we signed a deal, and they the industry said, yep, we're going to be competitive by that time. But the playing field is certainly not level when you look at the direct and indirect subsidies that go into fossil fuels today and historically. So there's a bigger argument about fairness. And the third question is, are these going to get passed? Uh, is this a fight that the renewable energy industries are going to take on? Does it make sense? And are there other policy objectives they should be shooting for in its place? So number one, Jigger, can solar and wind compete without these tax credits or under these new modified tax credits? Well, I think we should start by saying, you know, I have been very vocal, right? I was the first person in 2012 to announce that we wanted to phase down these subsidies, right? Yes, and I you have my, been on record many times on this show saying that for many years. And I worked my ass off to make that deal happen. Like even until the very end, the wind and solar industry were looking for a a a fixed um, extension without the phase down. And I worked my ass off to make sure that the phase down stayed in with the Republican offices. And so like, I think that it's important to note that like, I really believe passionately that the solar and wind industry cannot survive unless they phase down these tax credits. Like, I think that the Ponzi scheme around how the investment banks and the accounting firms and all these other people, right, involve themselves in the tax credit regime has blocked probably 90% of the U.S. population from participating in solar and wind. How? Right? Like Help it, me understand that. How and <clears throat> how would things change? So how many solar systems do you directly own, Stephen, today? I don't own any. I just have a community solar subscription. And the reason for that is because you are technically not an active investor. And so you can't own one unless you own a, a residential solar system on your roof using Section 25D. You cannot use a tax credit. So if your local church wanted to put solar on the roof of that church, you could not fund that project because you are not an active investor. And so people like me who are considered active investors make 18, 20, 25% rates of return on the tax credit because I can. Because who the hell else is going to provide a tax credit, you know, financing for a church? Nobody, right? And so, so like we have this weird program here in this country, which is not true in Germany. In Germany, over 35% of all the money that was funded into solar and wind projects in Germany came from 100,000 euro investors, right? And so politically, it was so important because everybody who had 100,000 euros in Germany invested in the clean energy movement. So when their politicians said, I hate clean energy, they voted them out because they had clean energy investments in their investment portfolio, right? We don't have that in this country. Only the top 0.1% of this country is invested in clean energy. So the CEO of Solar Holler, which is uh, in West Virginia, and his name is Dan Conant, testified yesterday before a Senate committee and said, look, there are states like West Virginia that are less wealthy and have taken longer to adopt solar because we were waiting for the price to come down. We couldn't afford it. Now we are starting to be able to afford it. And if you take the tax credits away, we will not be able to continue to deploy. So I'm very curious then, how do you enable states that have been slower moving because they were waiting for the price to go down to now be able to invest jigger if they don't have the tax credit? 
They don't need the tax credit. This is what I'm saying. So what you're saying is basically I should over-subsidize by $8 billion the California solar market so that I can get $50 million worth of solar in West Virginia? They don't need it. What they need is someone to actually come in more intelligently and put together a package on a net zero energy building. And I'm happy to help teach them how to do that, right? And so you take solar, you take energy efficiency, you take electric vehicle charging, and you help build net zero energy you know, solar projects and building projects in West Virginia. But the thing is, is that I can actually invest in that and I can let you and Stephen and other people invest in that directly right in that world but today i can't i mean it's people in good conscience just can't let the 30 percent tax credit go unmonetized in order to like get projects done and so like we're in this weird place right now where solar and wind have absolutely gotten super cheap and they absolutely are within striking distance of all of those projects remember in west virginia people today do spend twenty thousand dollars to put diesel backup generators on their house with Generac. And it makes no sense. There's no payback for that. They do that from a resiliency standpoint. Solar plus storage today without subsidies is way cheaper than that. So if the tax credits go away, then what kind of capital fills in the gap? And what kind of policy do you need in its place, if any? Does it go away and magically you have a new set of investors that can participate? Or do you need another structure? So, for example, you talked about Germany. Obviously, Germany's boom and community-oriented boom with smaller investors was fueled by the feed-in tariff. And sure, a lot of people participated, but they way overspent on renewables early on compared to the United States. So you could make but a counter-argument. that's not because of the feed-in tariff, right? That's because well, sure they is, didn't reduce it? the feed-in tariff. No, but they didn't reduce the feed-in tariff on a block grant basis, which is what we push them so hard to do and they just refuse to do. So, but like when you think about like how this should work, now the federal government that's has done their job, right? The the cost of solar has come down. It's become asymptotic. It is now the job of the states to say if we want to accelerate solar production in our state, then we have to pass policy locally. So that's a renewable portfolio standard, a clean energy standard. They could have a rec trading program, right? So you could imagine that if the tax credit went away, that in Maryland, the renewable energy credits would go up in value to be able to compensate for that, right? That's how this marketplace works. But when you think about how awesome it's going to be that every single person in the country is going to be able to invest directly into solar and wind and generate the same sort of 8, 9, 10% returns that you're not making in the rest of your investment portfolio today, it's going to unlock an entire like public awareness campaign like you've never seen. Catherine, what do you think about the renewed focus on the state level? Do you agree with Jigger's approach? First of all, are you working on any of the tax credit issues on the federal level yet? And what? And I know that you've expanded your focus into the state level in recent years. How much more focus should folks like you and the industry put on the state instead of on a renewed tax credit debate? Well, for one reason, states are trying to move forward with 100% clean or renewable standards. So they want to move forward. The Right now, we have a Congress and president who don't. And I cannot imagine that we get that done as long as President Trump is there. I just 
I just don't think we would. So I think, yes, it's really important to get state policy put into place because they want to move forward and they can be creative and be a little bit more uh, experimental than a federal policy would be. Now, there is one thing I want to make sure that we get done that I actually think we can get done with the the politics the way they are now. And hopefully we'll have it done by the summer. Uh, because in June, the House is supposed to mark up those credits that were orphaned. So all the ones that were not in that deal that expired, like the geothermal production tax credit, the biodiesel credit, fuel cells, building efficiency, and the clarification for energy storage, so that it's separated out from from solar and other renewables so that it gets its own credit. If we could make sure that those get extended, and that they're on the same schedule as the other ITC, PTC, so we can have the same schedule, we can have the same provisions, but let's get those done, because we can politically, we have the ability to do that. Now we have agreement on both sides of the aisle, both leaders in the House and Senate want to get this done and are motivated. So if we can get those and get them off the table, then when things change and the politics change over the next couple of years, so after the 2020 election, then we can say, all right, now what do we want to look at to get done? Um, you know, how do we deal with the fact that we have no longer a clean power plan that, you know, that, that, that politics have shifted back if they have shifted back and what can we really get done so i think we're not going to be able to do these until until politics change but i think there's some other things that we really have to do for clean energy okay so kind of a naive political question then if you do feel like there's support for some of these other tax credits then why not use that support and push for some kind of tech neutral tax credit and say, hey, all this stuff that we've got coming out of government labs and ARPA-E, we should try to put in place some kind of tax credit to to provide a bridge for some of these other technologies and, and make it neutral and not just for one specific technology. Obviously, like- Because about- that will bring down the entire bill. That will bring down everything we've tried to do with these other credits. It really will. That would, you cannot gum that up. Just- <laughs> But are you, if you talking want to do tech neutral? Senator, let's wait. Are you talking about Senator <laughs> Wyden's bill? Um, Senator Wyden is not in charge. <laughs> no, no, I know, but it's just like I hate that bill too. Like, I mean, like, I mean, just to address that question directly on that, Stephen. Like, in general, like there are a number of technologies. Let's call it 120 of them that really, really need the 30 percent tax credit or something like that, right? I mean, things like hydrogen for heavy trucks or um, you know, like renewable natural gas plants, right? Or these kinds of things. Like they really are high cost right now and we need to figure out a way to get them to scale to reduce the cost. And when you talk to the Congressional Budget Office, the total score on those tax credits might be like $100 million over seven years or $200 million over seven years, right? Whereas the solar and wind tax credits are costing us $20 billion, right? And so... So when you think about the entire McKinsey cost curve and all 120 technologies on that cost curve, all of which need to be at billion dollar, tens of billion dollar scale to implement the Green New Deal, I would much prefer to take the savings from the solar and wind tax credits and spread 30% tax credits to all those other technologies so we can get them up to speed. Right. I'm trying to figure out what you're saying, though. So why would a tech neutral tax credit be bad then? So it's actually easier to pass things if each industry like individually lobbies for its own tax credit. Is that what you're saying? 
the tech neutral tax credit would be way, way less lucrative. So when you look at Wyden's bill, it's a, it's like a 50% subsidy on wind power because wind power is so cheap, but it's an equivalent like 8% subsidy on renewable natural gas, right? And so like it doesn't make any sense. It basically helps the technologies that are already like pretty mature and it doesn't help enough the technologies that need the help. So Catherine, are you saying that these poor little orphan credits will get their their day in Congress? Yes, I I think they will. The orphans and energy storage. So I think uh, in the House markup in June, they'll get those done. The Senate is teed up. Um, Senator Grassley is very motivated to get a biodiesel credit done. And there's bipartisan support for energy storage. So I think they will get done. Um, in the next few months. And then we can, then when politics change and we get people who really want to think about climate solutions in a much more aggressive and intentional way, then we can revisit what we need to do to get there. And then we can have that fight. Okay. Last topic from Catherine's home turf in Washington, D.C., across the country to where Jigger now sits in San Francisco. It's official. Investigators now say PG&E equipment was responsible for last year's campfire, the most disastrous in California history. PG&E for months has said that its equipment may have caused the fire. And now we have an official investigation that says, yes, it was partly responsible for the spark that ignited the California wildfires last year. So what is going to happen next? We do know one outcome, potential outcome, blackouts. PG&E now says it may proactively shut off power lines in high-risk areas, potentially cutting power to a wide range of towns and cities, including San Francisco. So let's explore the potential outcomes here. I guess first to the fire investigation. So after this conclusion, what now, Jigger? I think San Francisco has made its intention known now that it wants to buy out PG&E and make itself into... Something that looks and feels more like a municipal utility. I'm not exactly sure what structure they're going to do, but I do think that they now believe that leaving leaving their fate in PG&E's hands is just not uh, acceptable. You know, PG&E just put out their warning to their entire um, rate base uh, around the fact that they could do these... Um, these brownouts for two to five days, and that included residents of San Francisco. So residents of San Francisco are not immune from being browned out if um, if it's required from a safety point of view. And I think that what that means, as Catherine said so eloquently, you know, on the last episode around healthcare impacts and emergency impacts, et cetera, are huge. And what I'm really concerned about is that the state of California might end up spending billions of dollars on backup diesel generators because, you know, we don't have enough time to put in all the microgrids by this fire season. Yeah, they put out some maps of uh, the hot spots. So they have, you know, tier two, tier three, tier two being medium and tier three being the most extreme at risk for wildfire. But the issue is that the grid is connected. And so some of those areas that are not at risk of wildfire are still at risk of public safety outages. And those are legitimate outages to, you know, cut power to a line that you think is at risk for causing fire. You would want to do that for public safety. But what that also does is it eliminates the ability for the utility 
to reliably serve their customers. And a lot of communities are impacted that aren't in wildfire regions, but are on the same transmission line. So it, it really puts the entire state at jeopardy. And like Jigger says, it makes it um, very susceptible to very quick, dirty solutions rather than being not not so much about spending money, but really about like how do we strategically deploy deploy assets that are going to mitigate until we can figure out how to fix the the system. Right. So we need quick and dirty solutions right now. Catherine Blunt at the Wall Street Journal joined us on the interchange recently, and she's done some great reporting with Russell Gold over there about how PG&E has systematically underinvested in its transmission system has ignored key upgrades. And consequently, that was part of the reason why the wildfires were sparked. So PG&E is in this really tough spot. Obviously, they have to reinvest in the system to harden it. In the meantime, they can't do that that quickly. And we wouldn't be having this conversation if PG&E had de-energized its line uh, that caused the campfire. And so it, it feels like this is like one of the only solutions that they have right now, and that is cutting out lines that cause a serious risk. I mean, it's a really terrible spot for a utility to be in. Well, the thing is that the strike force put out this wildfire assessment, and they're putting together all the utilities are doing mitigation plans. And I've written a few sets of comments uh, to those that because the reports have said that distributed energy resources and microgrids are not useful and in fact are you know make it harder for the utility to operate and i just think we need to change that narrative and we need to make sure that we're really strategically deploying these resources and using them in a way that yes can can help the grid when it's up but then also be able to operate safely when it's not so that you you have hospitals able to operate a, a standby diesel genset is not going to keep a hospital operating for days at a time you really need something like a microgrid that can continuously operate um, when it when the power is cut and then you know community centers or walmarts you know Half the people now that have been displaced are like camping out in a Walmart parking lot. So like figure out where those communities are that can that can have resources in case of these long term outages. And I honestly think people have not got their heads around, you know, several days of outages yet. Well, those of us who went to the microgrid knowledge conference, we've been trying to get our heads around it. I Look, I think that microgrids are really going to be a huge part of the solution. I do want to correct some of these misgivings, though. Like, this is entirely PG&E's fault. There's literally not a single person who bears even 1% responsibility for this outside of PG&E, right? They did not do their job, even though they told the CPUC that they were doing their job for 40 years, right? They, as Catherine Blunt talked about, they didn't inspect lines for 40 years that they were telling the CPUC that they did inspect. Right. And the reason for that is California, with all of its crazy regulation, still has this massive loophole where any savings to the maintenance budget um, within these utility companies accrues to their shareholders. And so because of this loophole, all of the major utility companies in California are incentivized to underspend on maintenance because they can dividend that money to their shareholders. Right. It's the the one big loophole for them. And so like there are regulatory changes that are required, I think, to make sure that these utility companies don't continue to 
to pursue bad behaviors. I think separately, there is a reckoning here. I mean, the new CEO of PG&E is the old CEO from TVA who has a long history of doing unsafe practices. They didn't actually try to solve this problem from the top, right? They didn't bring in an activist CEO who actually knows how to do the maintenance properly and prevent coal fly ash spills and all the things that, you know, you would want to have in place at a utility like PG&E, which features sort of Aaron Brockovich moments. So I think it's important for us to recognize that they don't even have the right people at PG&E to solve this problem at the top. They are now trying to reconstitute their board. And thank God they hired some really, really good board experts to try to figure out a way to get in much better board uh, representation. But we'll see what they come up with and politically how that works out. But I do think that um, PG&E has shown itself to be ungovernable. Un- ungovernable. <laughs> they have shown them uh, unpronounceable. Yeah, they have shown themselves to be ungovernable, right? And so, I think at some point we have to acknowledge that PG has to be broken up into pieces that people think can actually solve the problems at hand. One last anecdote is that California has eight major biomass burning facilities that have all been shut down or are bankrupt today because they cannot get access to any of this wood that PG&E says have to, has to get cut down uh, to make the, the, the power line safer, right? And so one thing PG&E could do is actually sign a goddamn contract with one of these biomass facilities to actually burn the, the wood in those facilities, right? And this includes pine beetle kill. There's lots of places where PG&E has been dysfunctional in its ability to solve this problem. Not to be cynical about this, but what's the economic opportunity? You know, we, 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 we talked about this at the end of last week's show when you all were discussing the microgrid knowledge conference. But even since then, we've seen more clarity on PG&E's uh, planned outages um, or its 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 potential outages. We now have more clarity on the origin of the campfire. So, what does this do to accelerate the urgency for microgrids for critical facilities, and now for distributed resources for residential customers who may see significant outages in the coming year or years? Well, I think that the municipalities are going to have a lot to say about this. And so we need to look at the communities and where they want to go and what they need and try to focus on those. So when you look at San Francisco uh, wanting to municipalize, and and it may not be full independence, you know, because you know that PG&E is going to gouge them for (laughs) the price. Um, So it may be just partial so that they can have some some independence um, so they can then have new authorization for some more strategic investment in clean energy. But they say that on their their initial report that this would make it much easier to get to their 100% CO2 goal, neutral goal, that it would provide rate stability, more transparency, that they could use the existing workforce, which um, would be union jobs, and that it would make uh, electricity more affordable, safe, reliable, and equitable. The one thing I would say is that you know, Tom Hoff, uh, just love that guy, 
uh, who helped start Clean Power Research, back in 2002-2003, did a series of reports with Christy Harrogate, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, looking at this question of what it's worth to the utility to provide much more reliable power by SIC code, right? So these are industry codes. And the reason it matters is because these power outages will reduce government revenue, right? I mean, there are taxable sort of, you know, work being done by many of these locations, which will be browned out, and they will make less money and pay less in taxes, right? And so he looked at this study around whether it was in the government's best interest to actually put in more resilient infrastructure back in 2002, 2003, um, using solar and storage and lots of other technologies so that the government could make sure it was getting its tax revenue. And I think you'll see a huge resurgence of that research, um, and it'll be practically applied probably by a lot of the CCAs. Well, let's dig down even deeper, right? Sunrun a few years ago had a couple hundred of its solar plus storage bright box systems. Now it has many thousands in California. Is it going to go to tens of thousands of systems very quickly because consumers are concerned about uh, outages? And you're both working with this company, Scale Microgrids. We actually had their founder, Timothy Haid, on the show uh, a while back. They're creating this scalable microgrid for critical facilities and they think California is the spot to do it now because of what's going on. So are these companies going to like explode in their activity because of what we see happening in California at the moment? Well, I, I sure hope so. I sure hope that they'll be able to deploy faster and more strategically. Um, I, it's not going to be in time for this fire season because it's coming up, but maybe by next fire season. Um, and, and they're addressing, you know, Sunrun is addressing a different part of the market than scale microgrid solutions. So they, you know, combined, they, they can cover more of the market. But, um, and I think this would provide opportunities for other providers too, if we can, if we can get the utility and commission to op- open their minds to this idea that these resources can actually provide additional safety and mitigating factors for their consumers. Well, this goes back to the SIC code analysis, right? So if you're in a neighborhood, let's say, which is really not affected by the fire, but you're affected by the safety shutoffs, you could imagine that you could shut your distribution line or your neighborhood grid off from the grid and run that entire grid off of solar plus storage that people have in their houses, right? And that's what Sonin is doing today in Germany and is, you know, working with folks in the U.S. to roll that out as well, right? So so the, the reason why this stuff matters, particularly even in the Sunrun case, is that I do think a day is coming where you're going to be able to, like, actually disconnect your neighborhood from the rest of the safety shutoff and actually re-energize your neighborhood grid while it's shut off from the rest of the grid. Let's give our listeners our free electrons. Hopefully not too free, lest there be any dry timber around. We want to we want to control those electrons and make them safe. But uh, let's let's hear what you got. So, Catherine, what is your free electron this week? So I have another podcast, but don't worry, it will not drive anybody away from ours because it's limited run. Um, Event Horizon is putting on this blockchain summit in Berlin in June, and in you know in conjunction with that. There is a podcast called Energy Singularity, and they're doing six podcasts in the lead up to this blockchain summit. 
And Scott Clavenna was uh, interviewed for the first one. And the titles of these podcast episodes are things like Reality Bites and Hype Versus Reality. So they really are trying to take on the good, bad, and ugly of blockchain and and where it really is. And I was interviewed for one of the episodes. I have absolutely no idea how it's going to turn out, um, as I have not heard that yet. But so far, they have two episodes up. And it's been interesting for me because I'm not an expert on blockchain. And to really hear from people who know where it is and what that hype cycle has been and maybe how it's settling out a little bit is really useful. So I would look it up. It's called Energy Singularity. I have been very busy behind the scenes working on a new series that will be dropping in June. So I will tell listeners about that one as well. I think people are really going to like it. Jigger, what's your free electron? So I've got sort of a one and a half one. One is you know, I don't know if you guys saw the Twitter storm yesterday, but uh, you know, one of the uh, the stock analysts on CNBC uh, from Roth Capital Partners said that Apple did provide a bid to buy Tesla in 2013. <laughs> I think it's unsubstantiated, so we'll see. But I would like to believe that we should get full credit for that. I, I, I can picture. Apple's board pulling up a SoundCloud page and they're like, here, li- listen to this podcast. Th- this will tell us everything we need to know about our strategy, our acquisition strategy. Oh, but gosh, that's what terrifying. What I really want to talk about is I got um, an advanced copy of Russell Gold's book called Superpower, which is really uh, a book about uh, our good friend Mike Skelly and his quest to remake the U.S. Uh, transmission grid. And it's just an extraordinary book. I mean, Russell Gold does amazing work to suss out all the different thread lines from Mike Skelly's, you know, original days at Horizon Wind through his work at Clean Line. And it's just amazing all the different people from Bill Johnson at TVA and Mike Polsky from Invenergy and others who play a big role in the book. Um, and uh, it's it's a real page turner, a lot of uh, juicy stuff in there. Well, Catherine, you suggested a podcast. Jigger, you suggested a book. So I guess I only have one thing to suggest, which is an article. Uh, the New York Times released this investigation of New York City's taxi medallion system in the last week. I don't know if either of you saw it, but it was really good. And it paints this picture of a predatory lending system that puts taxi drivers into debt and that can be nearly impossible to take off. So I have long fallen into this narrative that it was Uber and Lyft that caused the financial collapse of the New York taxi system and other taxi systems around the country subsequently. They obviously were a major catalyst, but it turns out that over the last decade, a group of medallion holders, these are the permits that allow New York City taxi drivers to operate, would hold on to those medallions, aggregate them, and then inflate the prices, and then issue loans to drivers with extremely attractive entry rates, but that would balloon to really extraordinarily extraordinary levels if they didn't get paid off in a certain amount of time. And just like the housing crisis, this system was built on the idea that taxi medallion prices would never fall. And then, of course, in comes ride-hailing, and this whole system collapses. And thousands of drivers are unable to pay back their loans. Their lives have been ruined. We've seen a spate of many suicides in the taxi industry in New York. It's been very sad. And and this, this was just a really great piece of journalism. It was a two-part series, and it's since caused a bunch of investigations in New York. And it's a reminder that 
you know, these stories are just far more complicated than they appear because, of course, Uber and Lyft caused these major problems, but they exposed and exacerbated this much bigger financial system underpinning the taxi network. Yeah, I talked to a driver in Chicago, a taxi driver, who said sort of the same thing, that he bought this really expensive medallion and it's worth nothing now. Well, that's it for the show. You know, we don't ask for subsidies here. We just ask for your moral support. Send out the word on social media. Recommend this show to your colleagues and friends. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us. So, Catherine, you're there in DuPont Circle. Where are you going to go? Are you going to go to the IMF today? Are you going to go to the World Bank Treasury? Are you going to go to Core Power Yoga, to Shake Shack? What delightful place are you going to attend after we finish this podcast? I am going to go back to my office and do conference calls for the rest of the day. (laughs) I'm afraid. (laughs) Not very glamorous. Jigger, what's up in San Francisco? I'm going to start looking for subsidies for myself. I really, <laughs> oh, yeah. I really think that there's a big, uh, big opportunity in subsidies. If you find any, shoot them over to me. We can divvy them up, and we will put more money into this show on the government dole. With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is the Energy Gang. Conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media and Postscript Audio. We'll catch you next time, folks. 